sun is down and the deadlights are out. Welcome to Stay Out of Maine, a Stephen King podcast. I am the Critical Android, and joining me for a discussion is Dougie Style. How are you, Dougie? Here's Dougie. Ah, uh, yes, indeed. That's because we're talking about The Shining. Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, and then Stephen King's The Shining. Both very important markers of differentiation. Indeed. Well, it's well known now that Stephen King took umbrage yes. with many of the elements of 1980s The Shining. But usually it's because horror films push against good taste. And so critics who like to think that they have the best taste a lot of the time find it in poor taste and don't think it's very good. But yeah, I'm not surprised that critics didn't like it initially. For instance, Roger Ebert, it says here, was critical of the work at first and then later included it into his great movies. He's got a very interesting take on it in that he mentions the fact that there's pretty much a, an unreliable narrator throughout the entire film, or at least an unreliable perspective, because of the way these characters are so disturbed and, and distorted through either the presence of the hotel or their own psychological trauma, however you want to take it. It makes for, whereas the book and the miniseries, as we go into that, are both very much supernatural in nature. The supernatural elements in Kubrick's version are toned down significantly to where this could just be mass hallucination for the most part, with the only real heavy paranormal unexplained event being how did Jack get out of the storage uh, cupboard pantry. Right. And I read that review too by Roger Ebert, actually, where he also interviewed Shelley Duvall about just how much she suffered on the set. And that's interesting that he didn't like it initially, because he is one of those people that's usually a little bit more open. I mean, he was one of the few real defenders of Halloween when it came out. Both him and Siskel actually really liked that movie, and they were some of the first positive reviews that film garnered at the time. I actually find that interesting that he didn't like The Shining at first either, but looking back at the film, it'd been a little while since I'd seen it, as we've discussed, we've never really read the Stephen King books before until this podcast, but we've seen some of the movies. And going back to Halloween, I became a big horror fan around 1997, early 98, thanks to seeing Halloween. And for the next couple of years, I would rent a lot of movies from Blockbuster, Hollywood Video, and start seeing more and more horror. And The Shining was probably one of the earliest ones I saw. And it did make an impression. And it's one of those films I always thought about getting on video to own because I, I was collecting horror films at that point on VHS, but I just never did. This is also a case, too, where the film, despite how much Stephen King hates it, it really does stand apart from the novel as its own work of art, basically. This film is completely iconic. It is, as we were saying in the last one, besides, randomly enough, an episode of Friends, which actually references the novel for a side plot, everything else always references the film. The film is what has lingered in the public's imagination for decades now, to the point where even the newest season of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is using images from The Shining for its parody advertisements for the season, because it's the 13th season, so they're making it all horror parodies. So the fact that he made a film like that that still resonates with people so long after the fact really does say that he did something right. He may have done some things wrong and we'll probably discuss that, but in the whole, he did something right. If this is a movie that people still love, still talk about, I can't tell you how many people I know say it's one of their favorite horror movies, if not their favorite film of all time. So this is definitely a movie that 
has a huge reputation, very iconic. It's almost referenced to the point where you kind of know the movie, even if you've never seen the movie. Yeah. And to the film's credit, one of the reasons why it works as well as it does is because with horror, you don't need to always have fleshed out characters in order for the movie to be effective. And you certainly Mm. don't have fleshed out characters here. No. The book was very much a character study on Jack Torrance and the people around him. And you did get more depth into Wendy, and she was a more fleshed out character who stood up for her son and stood up for herself, too. And Danny and his relationship with Tony was more fleshed out, and that was revealed to be another supernatural connection that Danny communicated with Tony being from the future. So all those elements in the book aren't things that are necessary for a horror movie. If you're trying to make a drama, those things are a bit more necessary, because drama involves being able to put ourselves into the places of characters and feel their lives. But horror is more about the situational aspect of things and the frightening atmosphere and events of what what's about to transpire. You don't need the characters to be all that developed. We, we just need the bare bones of them, which is what we have. Because uh, it's still effective to be able to put ourselves into those places and feel what they're feeling. Jack is an angry asshole, and he's that way throughout the entire film. He's incredibly one-dimensional in that sense. Wendy is the browbeaten wife. Again, very one-dimensional. That's all she really is. If anything, if anybody has a bit more depth, it's Danny. We have the kid, but we also have his personality at some point supplanted by Tony to where this is even scarier than it is in the book, in a sense, is that Tony never takes over Danny in the book or in the miniseries. But In this film, after a certain point in time, once we cross the threshold, Tony's personality has taken over Danny, and Danny's mind, as we know it, is basically subverted. And that's an interesting take on it that heightens the the horror of the situation, because you can see it either as the kid's mind being supernaturally suppressed as Tony takes over as self-defense, or you can view it as a kid who's being so traumatized by these events that he's behaved almost developed like a disassociative identity disorder in order to help cope. So those things work very well for the film. And Kubrick was wise in that sense to be able to make that transition from a character study to basically one-dimensional characters to have the situations play out like that and to have the story develop along those lines. Not everybody can do that. Credit, too, has to go to the actors and actresses because, let's face it, Nobody can really play an angry asshole like Jack Nicholson can. And when Jack starts to ham it up, oh god, it is fucking glorious to watch. He is amazing at it. Yeah, and you have to think, you know, re-watching it again, Jack Nicholson's performance in this movie, I have to think that it was this performance that pretty much made him a lock for being cast as the Joker in Tim Burton's 1989 Batman movie. When they were coming up with the movie, he was the first name everybody thought of for the Joker and the first person they locked down for the film. Well, I can see why. It's when he's going off on that on that rant, especially after Wendy discovers the pages, which is another interesting thing that the, the movie has that the book and the miniseries didn't. Some things in this movie that are kind of horrible and terrifying, not necessarily at face value, but when you actually think about it. For example, when Wendy sees all those type pages of all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. In the miniseries in the book, we know that Jack is working originally on a play, and that he was trying to finish it. 
And then he started wanting to write about the mansion or the the Overlook Hotel. And there's that transition in him as the the hotel's kind of taking over. But here, apparently the only thing Jack has been doing the entire time while still trying to play things off as normal is writing all work and no play make Jack a dull boy over and over and over, over pages and pages and pages, meaning that he has been batshit crazy since basically the minute he touched that typewriter. Right. That's kind of terrifying in a way that the movie doesn't outright express that. Because nobody ever says, Jack, is this all you've ever been doing? It's inferred. And that inferred terror of where this person's mind is, is so very effective. And that's something that King can't capture as well in a book meeting. Because in a book, you do have to kind of spell things out a little bit more. You don't have the, the luxury of the imagery. But seeing Shelley Duvall go through this page is all terrified and getting more and more anxious over it. And then Jack... <laughs> coming in and seeing her doing it, uh, it, it's just a wonderful set piece for the for the movie, and it, it says something like like you said about how people reference the film more than the book, and it's because of those startling images and the way that it's all shot and played out for the audience for that to take in that people gravitate towards that. Kubrick distills the essence of the horror of many of the scenes of the book and puts them in a way that we can vi- really visualize it. And it, it, it's a strike. Well, I think the thing, too, is it says a lot that most of what people remember f- from The Shining is stuff that he really did that isn't in the book or explicitly said in the book. Yet at the same time, it is obvious that Stanley Kubrick read the book. And watching the movie again, it's instructive because it tells you a lot. And one thing that I want to point out that I think we're, you know, you were getting at, too, is that writing a book and making a movie are two completely different things. They're both storytelling vehicles, but they're not the same. And a lot of times being hampered by the source material can really hurt a film, in my opinion. Here, Kubrick looked at the book and he honestly tried things. He tried to do the hedge animals. It is talked about that he did try to do that. And he realized very quickly that that was not going to work at all. And so to his credit, he went with the hedge maze instead, which is much more iconic and in a lot of ways more effective. Because as much as we love the book... We're not completely sold on hedge animals. (laughs) Other things that he has in the movie are actually in the book. And some people just think that he put them in there randomly. And a lot of those people are people who haven't read the book. But like the little girls, the twin girls, that's one of the most iconic things, not just in the film, but in horror. I mean, it is referenced over and over and over again. Come play with us, Danny, forever and ever and ever. That never happens in the book. But... It is discussed that one of the previous caretakers did have two daughters that he slaughtered. In some ways, it's almost as if, like, the book was one of those pieces of archived newspaper that Jack found in the basement. When you have characters like that pop up, it's like, well, we've read about those, and now suddenly here they are in the movie. And it's, it's kind of almost a companion piece in that sense for when those things happen. It's cool when you think of it from that perspective. Obviously not the way it was intended by any means, But it's funny how that works like that. 
Because like you said, we hear about these girls, and we know their fate. And it's almost like reading about them, like a murder mystery. You've you've read about these, and you've heard these two girls are killed, and they don't really pop up in the book, but then you're watching the movie, and it's like, oh god, those are the girls that I read about. I have to give him a lot of credit, because he found stuff in the book that would be scary on screen if it was explained more, or shown more, and then realized things that wouldn't be as good on the screen and took those out. So he elaborates on places of the book where he's like, this could be a really good, scary image or a terrifying, you know, set piece that we could do if we could flesh it out. Again, like a lot of people think that that scene where you see the guy dressed as a dog giving the other guy the BJ is completely random. But now that we've read the book, I have context for that scene now in the movie. I now understand why that's there. He didn't just put it there to be random. That's a complete subplot that we saw in the book about the guy dressing as a dog to try to woo the owner of the Overlook Hotel a couple decades earlier. And so in some ways, reading the book kind of enriched the experience of the film because you can kind of get certain things more and you can also appreciate certain things that Kubrick is doing here within this movie. And then as Doug was talking about the last time, one of the most disappointing parts of the book for him was when the elevator comes up and it's just confetti (laughs) and, and a party hat. Where here, it's the blood that comes out. But I have to say, it's funny because it's parodied and referenced so much. I mean, the idea of the doors opening and the blood coming out. Obviously, The Simpsons has one of the greatest lines of all time. Mr. Burns says, hmm, the blood usually doesn't get off until the second floor. I always thought that the doors opened and the blood came out. But when you watch the movie, they actually come down from the ceiling between the wall and the elevators. And in my mind, I just always thought they came out of the elevator doors, but they don't. But it works better that way because then he can just keep dropping as much blood as he wants from that crack in the ceiling instead of it just coming out of the elevator. Because there's a lot of blood. Yeah, there is. If everything that everyone remembers about this movie is stuff that he came up with and they remember it fondly, again, I can't fault him for that. Cooper is not here to make a note-for-note remake of the book. He's here to make a scary piece of cinema, and he's succeeding. Yeah, he truly does. And there's parts of it that, I I guess looking at it from a writing perspective as well, do I take umbrage to the fact that the characters are so one-dimensional? Yeah, that that, that does kind of rub me the wrong way. I would like a bit more more meat on the bones to sink my teeth into, I guess. It is sad to see Shelley Duvall pretty much wasted as an actress because she has been so psychologically tormented and i will say it it does make it harder for me to watch the film knowing the abuse that she went through it just kind of makes me uncomfortable going through and watching it i guess the movie's credit being uncomfortable while watching it is also kind of the point too whether it was intended that way or not and seeing such a weak and submissive woman being being tormented by her husband especially today with like the the me too movement and everything makes it all the more uncomfortable to watch it happening and watching it play out. Also, other things that are kind of more effective, too, the the infamous Here's Johnny scene, having Jack go through with the axe instead of a a rope mallet, probably a better decision, since axes are scarier than mallets, mind you. (laughs) Yes. The, The scene where, and this is taken very much from the book, too, where Jack is busting down the door, Wendy is trying to fend him off with the razor blades. Watching that scene play out in the movie is very much like it would have been with the book, just substitute the the axe for the mallet. And it's very effective watching her fight back like that. Uh, the only thing that I, I guess isn't as effective to me, I don't know how I feel about the ending of Jack freezing to death. I will say that the transition 
to seeing his frozen body is wonderfully startling. That is fantastic. The lead-up to it, I just felt, uh, I don't know, wandering around the hedge maze and Danny being able to basically lure him off track. That was all right. At least the finish of that, <laughs> cutting to like, boom, Jack's frozen face in that terrible grimace. That part is brilliant. I do appreciate all of that. From what I understand, I think Kubrick also went that route again because I think he tried to do something of blowing up the hotel, but it just wasn't working. And so they went with this ending instead. I think Kubrick did try to go with the book sometimes, just wasn't feasible, especially with the technology at that time. So he went a different route to make it more effective. And again, that frozen Jack Nicholson at the end there is, like you said, it's scary and it's jarring. And again, it's something that's referenced all the time in popular culture, that scene. Yeah. And the the final mind screw of it all, of Jack being in that picture from the Overlook back in the day, uh, and that's the the image that we fade out on, is meant to you know throw the audience for a loop. And I guess the the what's inferred of what Kubrick was trying to infer was that Jack is the reincarnation of that man from the past, which is also why at one point in time uh, Jack does say that there's something about this place that feels right, feels familiar, comfortable. So it's like he's been there before, and he's back there again. Almost like his, his, his that spirit, that soul, is caught in a loop. Like he's destined to keep coming back here. And again, that's not really spelled out, and that's also not something that's really part of the book. That, that sense of being caught in a loop like that. In a way, this is also something that works well for the movie in, in terms of horror, that you don't see at face value, but the more you pick it apart, it becomes clear. The idea that a person's soul is, is caught in this loop of that he's just going to keep reincarnating to come back to this hotel especially if we combine what we know about the hotel from the book, is that this location itself is evil. Even if you escape the hotel, your next life is just going to bring you right back there again. And that is pretty pretty fucking terrifying in that aspect of it. Again, the idea that you can't leave. You are trapped. And there is no heaven or hell for you. You are trapped by this hotel in a perpetual loop. And that seems to be what Kubrick was wanting to infer with that. But at the same time, know full well, Kubrick was notorious for saying things in certain interviews and then saying other things in different interviews to either mess with, I don't know if it was to mess with people or if it was more of a sense of wanting to remain ambiguous. Well, I think that is something that is really a big appeal of The Shining is that it invites more questions than it answers. And I think that's what draws a lot of people into this film. I mean, when I was telling someone I was reading the book recently, they looked at me and said, oh, I love that movie. How's the book? Does it explain this? Does it explain that? They wanted to have answers to the questions they had from this movie, not in a bad way, but just because they were so interested in it and they wanted to learn more. That is really good horror filmmaking when you leave the audience not necessarily knowing everything they just saw and leaving them questioning that. I think that that is, that is good horror in general. So I, I kind of wanted to go back and talk about Wendy a little because uh, you brought up some good points. I'm 50-50 on how she is portrayed in this movie. Like you, I mean, it's terrible what happened to her with Stanley Kubrick. It's also something where it 
it can be a real detriment to the film. My dad is actually not a big fan of The Shining, and he's told me that the reason being is that he can't stand Shelley Duvall in this movie. He just finds her too simpering and weak, just kind of annoying, and he wants his women to be more like Ripley or Laurie Strode. I can totally sympathize with that. Having a strong female protagonist or even side character does tend to help elevate a film, especially after so many years and years and years of seeing women as the the victim or the the eye candy. So to see somebody reduced to this this state can be very irritating if it, it goes against what you expect out of cinema. But again, you have to put yourself into the mindset of that's the point. That's why the character is the way she is for the effect of which it generates for this film. Right. I mean, that's what I was going to say. The other part of me though, can see why it's that way, because you made a good point. There's not a lot of strong characterization here, unlike the book, but that's not really the point of the movie. The movie is more about what would we do in that situation and kind of throw us in the middle of the terror. And the look of terror on her face throughout this film is just palpable. It's coming off the screen. I remember seeing images of her screaming from the bathroom when he's knocking the axe through it. Just the look of unbridled terror in her eyes and face is scary. It's scary in of itself. She's so scared that I'm scared what's happening. And even when I hadn't seen the film, just seeing that image creeped me out as a child because obviously what she was looking at was the scariest thing that had ever happened to anyone ever. And so in that case, as an audience surrogate, it kind of works because it makes you more afraid of the film. I'm also not going to lie. If I was trapped in a remote hotel for a whole winter in a snowstorm with Jack Nicholson, I don't think that I would be coming across as a pillar of bravery and confidence either. I'd like to think that I would be, but something tells me that if Jack Nicholson started coming at me with an axe, I would also be a blubbering mess <laughs> and crying my eyes out and running around. Absolutely terrified. Yeah, I'm 50-50 I'm on this. I think that from a character standpoint, it's weak, but from an atmospheric standpoint, it works. Yeah, I agree it does, and I think it's important that we make make it known here that this is not the forum for us to discuss whether or not it's justified for a director to take the actions that they do to get the performances right. that they want. And that's something I didn't know about until very recently, until I started really reading up about this before we podcasted about it. I yeah. didn't really know what Stanley Kubrick had done behind the scenes of this film until very recently. If we take a step back, obviously there's questions of emotional abuse it, not even questions, it's flat-out emotional abuse that she was not prepared for. And whether or not it's right to do those things to get the performance that you want, it's a discussion for another time. I do want to make it known that we're not condoning what happened, because certainly it was effective. What happened did get the performance that he wanted. Whether that's justified or not is a different story for a different time. And that kind of brings us to Jack Nicholson, who's, as a lot of people say, two of his most iconic performances are him playing characters named Jack, The Shining, and Batman. Most people would argue that he wasn't really playing much of a character. He was just exaggerating his usual Jack Nicholson actions. I, I could see where Stephen King went into this film and was furious. I could see where he hated Wendy because he's called her just a screaming dish rag in this movie, that he thought it was completely anti-feminist and very insulting. And that Jack is just crazy. And as we talked about, Jack is obviously Stephen King. He's writing about himself. And so to see himself portrayed by Jack Nicholson this way, I, I can only assume he just took it as a huge insult. I get where he's coming from. 
Yet at the same time, in the book, I'm not really afraid of Jack. I'm afraid of the Overlook Hotel. And as we said, the Overlook Hotel is very much supernatural in the book. It, it, it's, it's not really a question. I mean, they play with that for a while. Is it or isn't it? But then once it, we find out that it is, there's no going back. Here, we're not sure. Instead, we're just terrified of Jack Nicholson. And I got to say, watching this movie again, certain scenes with him were just creeping me out. Just him staring out a window with those dead eyes. I mean, I was getting goosebumps. So yeah, maybe not the character Stephen King envisioned, maybe not the most complex character, but is it terrifying? Yes. Does it make it a scarier movie? Yes. So therefore, is it successful? Probably. Well, it helps that things go from zero to 60 very fast when it comes to Jack. Oh yeah. I mean, I love the first scene where Wendy comes down to ask him about the book and yeah. right off the bat just like uh i could you know be writing a good book if you just fucking left me alone you're just like whoa yeah right out <laughs> okay, there where did that come from <laughs> that that was out of nowhere yeah and, and see that's where again from a writing standpoint that's pretty atrocious writing because it's not yeah. realistic it's not believable that a character would just all of a sudden boom go like that especially if they're a married couple who have we haven't seen any sources of marital strife. So for them to go to that to boom just like that is outlandish. I could see where King absolutely hated it. It's not just it's not just King hating it. That's just writing in general. Just like in real life. If we go and we have a situation that happens like that, where we talk to somebody who we believe is amicable, and we just say, hey, how's things going? Like, Don't you fucking talk to me. Out of the blue. We would know something is wrong. We would know that's not right. And from a writing standpoint, the same thing. If somebody reacts like that with no previous, like, some sort of inclination or anything about that, it, it just doesn't make sense. Right. I mean, they haven't shown them as a couple much before that. They're separated at the beginning. We hear them on a phone call. Then they're on the car right up and they see the hotel and but they're with other people. That's that's really their first scene alone together in the same space. <laughs> it's just coming off as you're an annoying shrew. <laughs> Get away from me right now because I can't stand your presence. Yeah, we are taking obvious hits and sacrifices to character development in order to throw the audience into this really hard scene and. Generally, you'd have some sort of a build-up to these things, too. Like, if Jack's an alcoholic, we would have some sort of inclination that this is the alcoholism leading to it. And the only thing we ever get about alcohol in here is when Jack is at the bar saying, you know, he'd sell a soul for a drink in this place. And that's the only... We don't get much more beyond that. It's not really fully established that Jack has a terrible drinking problem uh, throughout this and is craving alcohol throughout the entire time. Just really at that one place is where it's rough. Other than that, unlike the book and uh, the miniseries, where it's a frequent occurrence where Jack is longing for alcohol, and that's just making the situation worse. But we don't get nearly as much of that in the in the movie. Which is another thing that I, I would believe that King takes umbrance about, is that The Shining is very much allegorical to the, the problems with alcoholism. All of what Jack is going through, whether it's supernatural or not, is tied back to craving for alcohol. Is this well written in points of that? It's it's not supposed to be. And that's where King is, like, red lights are, you know, flashing in King's mind when he's viewing something like this. Is Not only has he destroyed my characters, the, the writing here is, is, is just weird. It's just, it doesn't make much sense. But again, it's not supposed to make as much sense because that's what makes it so unsettling. 
would it make sense for Jack to have a natural progression towards that snapping at Wendy? It would. But in this world that we're in, not a lot of things are making complete sense, and that is entirely for the sake of throwing off the audience, and it works. Right, and he only has two hours to tell this story, unlike King, who had hundreds and hundreds of pages, too. I mean, he's trying to make this as tight and efficient as possible. And so something else that he wipes out pretty much completely from the book is the boiler. I mean, we just see the boiler in one scene, and it's Wendy who goes to check on the boiler. I mean, getting rid of the boiler tells you, too, just how much we're getting rid of Jack's character arc, because the boiler was really a stand-in in a lot of ways, for how he was feeling throughout the novel. And compare that to the miniseries, where what's the first scene in the miniseries? It's, yep, yeah, it's the boiler. Exactly. Uh, just putting it back front and foremost, I, I think is a, a good tactical decision on the part of the miniseries, and we'll talk more about that. Here in, like you said, in the movie, the boiler's not even a part of this, which again, also shows why you can't really blow up the hotel, because y- you haven't even established the whole boiler thing. Another thing with, with the hedge maze, too, We do see, early in the movie, Wendy and Danny exploring it, and there's Jack looming over the diorama of it that's in the office there. That creepy, foreboding sense, and this this is good writing. This is good writing and, and showmanship in the film, where we've established the hedge maze and the fact that it's there, and we've seen them wandering in it, so Danny's familiar with it, so that later on, And kids are great about this, about memorizing little details and going through things like that. So Danny's familiarity with the hedge maze comes back to help him later on. And that that scene of Jack, like, looming over it, not paying attention to it, not having the details of it, that's why he gets lost and he dies. I could be misremembering this, but when he's looking at the diorama, can't he see them walking through the diorama? I don't think he can see them. I think it's... Yeah, because I'm trying to remember, and I feel like he saw them, and I feel like that's another scene that's supposed to kind of be putting you off balance, where you're not sure if he's seeing it, if it's just a trick of directing, if it's what. I don't think Jack is actually seeing it. Okay, Maybe it's just us, the audience. But again, that's what makes it, I think, what goes back to Ebers, who is a reliable narrator. What what are we seeing that they aren't seeing, or what are they seeing and throwing us off balance so that we're not really sure what we're seeing? And, and that is part, a, a little bit, of King's novel, too, that Jack is not entirely reliable. Because we discussed before how Jack doesn't remember things properly. He remembers them in convenient ways. Like when he's discussing setting that clock ahead during the debate. When he's first discussing it, he's swearing he never set it ahead. And then he's saying, oh, if I set it ahead, it was only by about a minute just to end up put him out of his misery. So Jack's lying to himself about certain things to make them convenient. So we don't always know how to take Jack on these things. And the movie is good about that, too. Like how Ebert says, the guy's crazy. And when we see things from his perspective or we're around him, like the people at the bar and in the party, all those things. Is this actually happening? And are we seeing things from an objective lens and watching it play out? Or are we seeing things being filmed from Jack's perspective and these things do not exist? It's trippy enough in that sense. It's trippy without being trippy because we can follow it. But then we have to ask ourselves whether or not things actually played out the way that they did. Though everything kind of comes back to the fact that somehow he gets out of that storage pantry. And that is supposed to be supernatural. So yeah, the hotel is supposed to be haunted in some way, shape, or form. 
Right. And the fact that Wendy can see a lot of it at the end, too, yes. is supposed to kind of be a trigger to us that's, that this is a haunted establishment, that it isn't it wasn't all just psychological. Yeah. And that's a good build up too. whereas before many of the happenstances were happening to one character. But as right. it expands from them near the climax of the film, now we're knowing that shit got real. So we have a better understanding like, yeah, this is truly uh, an infected place with supernatural elements. It's interesting, too, that the whole scene with that infamous room, whose number has changed in this movie from the book, that we don't actually get to see Danny go in there and experience what he experiences in the book and the miniseries. We just see the after effect of him walking towards his parents, shell shock. We to see it from Jack's perspective. So again, is there anything really in that room or not? It's all from Jack's point of view, so we're not really sure what he's seeing. And it's also a lot more sexualized in the movie than it is in the book, where he sees a beautiful naked woman first that seduces him, which again makes Jack a less likable character in the movie than he was in the book. In a lot of ways, yeah, it plays out the same. He comes back, Danny, and he's got the little marks around his neck, and Jack goes in there and sees something and then doesn't admit it to everyone. But the way Kubrick stages it, it kind of takes on a completely different tone and a different feeling than the book. And it says different things about Jack as a character, too, than the book does. Is it creepy? Yes. And part of that is because of the music, which I really want to talk about. If there's something in The Shining that I think is just 100% firing on all cylinders, it's the, it's the score. The music to this movie is brilliant. The main theme, of course, is iconic. I actually stuck around to figure out who did the music, and I was pleasantly surprised to learn that Kubrick took a lot from Bartok. And I've been getting into classical music recently this year, trying to get into all the composers, and I was just starting to get into Bartok. So to find that Bartok's music is used throughout this film was a pleasant surprise, but also quite effective. It's from Bartok's music from strings, specifically the third movement, which is the kind of most eerie and atonal movement of that piece. It's quite creepy. Horror movies are so dependent on their scores, in my opinion. I, I feel like a really great horror score makes a great horror movie. I think they, they can make or break a horror film. Here, the music is so good that it really does ramp up the tension and fear. Just seeing a naked woman in a bathtub wouldn't be scary, but the way the music is swelling during that whole scene is telling us, this isn't right, something's wrong. You're very much right, and the classical score does help augment that. Ten strings do an awful lot. I mean, that's what worked with Psycho, is ten strings. Kubrick has been very good about finding these things. Even 2001 A Space Odyssey, if anybody knows, oh god, it's going to be very hard for me to pronounce it pro uh, properly, but the the iconic theme that everybody knows from that also sprouts Zathrustra, uh, that do 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 Kubrick used that to great effect. So he has this way of finding and hunting down music that perfectly suits the atmosphere for what he's going for, and that is obvious here in The Shining. It shows he read the book because if you remember... When King talks about Wendy listening to her records, her pop records were Simon and Garfunkel and the Beatles, but the classical stuff she liked to listen to included Bartok. They mentioned Bartok in the book. Just a little thing that Kubrick is kind of bringing out from the book and kind of putting on display in the movie, because you can talk about music in a book, but that's really all you can do is talk about it. It doesn't have much effect in a book, but in a movie, as I said, it really makes or breaks it. It was a brilliant move on his part to take that piece and then specifically put it in the film how he did. Leading off of music here as I was thinking about it, 
There's this wonderful scene in the book where Dick Halloran is just <laughs> hates Terry Jack's season in the sun. And right. <laughs> changes it. But Halloran in this movie, poor guy, does not get used effectively. We do have some of that backstory that's presented about being able to tell Danny about The Shining. And, you know, Scatman Crothers does a very good job of trying to keep that role and, and assert what he needs to. But the character is useless in the film after that. And it feels like he's just there as an afterthought. I mean, he's basically just there to make sure they have a snowplow to get out of there. He's yeah. basically just there to be a plot point so that there's a way of escape for Wendy and Danny. And it's interesting that they spend so much time with him because they do spend a good amount of time getting him to the hotel. We see him calling, getting on the plane, talking to the guy about renting a snowmobile to get up there. We build all that up and then we just kill him. And it kind of felt useless, but at the same time, it's Kubrick giving you one of the biggest shocks of the film when he jumps out and kills him with the axe. It is one of the biggest scares. So again, bad for character development and not really great storytelling, but great memorable horror cinema. I wonder if he did it because when the movie was being made, it was obviously closer to the release of the book. So people had that in mind. So if he went into the movie knowing the book, they would think, oh, well, Halloran comes up there and he makes an effort to save them. And then here you have it and you get this really bad, it's a bad twist for Halloran, but it's a good twist for the movie in that he's just struck dead and he doesn't come back from it. So it could have been kind of a a deliberate fuck you to the audience. Think, oh, you thought he was going to come here and save him this time? Not in this version. <laughs> yeah, nope. It's Kubrick sacrificing character in order to ramp up the tension and fear in the movie. It really does come down to, do you want a, a story about good characters and storytelling, or do you want to see one of the scariest movies ever made? Make your choice. <laughs> yeah, and there's also the deliberate lack of explanation of certain things that help draw this out more. Because in the book and in the miniseries, we get far more explanation about Tony we get a bit more in-depth descriptions of The Shining and what it entails, the powers are that Danny has. The movie is very vague about all of that. And I think to its benefit that it does that because you, you leave the audience in a state of controlled confusion and having them wonder what the hell's going on with it all. So it's good about sacrificing those details. I'm glad that the book is there to help flesh those out more so we can understand that, because that is some kind of a carryover between them. The movie's reveal of Red Rum is far greater than the book's. Agreed. The book is so heavy-handed with everything about the reveal that Jack is going to kill him. Jack is going to kill him. You've got all those pages and paragraphs of Jack's father and come on and get your medicine, all these things over and over. So we know it's like, okay, Steven, we get it. We know what's going to happen. Jack's going to fly off the handle and kill everybody with the mallet. We get it. The movie does not go to those pains to spell that all out. So when Red Rum becomes murder, it is much more effective in the movie than it is in the book in that regard. And it happens just to the point where Jack has broken and is going to kill them all. Right. One of the most iconic things people remember is Danny after being taken over by the Tony persona with his little finger walking up saying, Rad Rob, Rad Rob, Rad Rob. It's not even in the book. 
Right. But yet that's what everyone remembers. Again, it's Kubrick taking something from the book and ramping it up and making it scarier and making it in some ways more memorable than the book. Points to Kubrick because it is more effective in the movie than it is in the book, the Red Rum reveal. It all goes back to the fact that we're watching and experiencing two different things. The book is supposed to be a character study about Jack. And for that, it is amazingly effective. And it's a wonderful piece of literature. The film is trying to be scary. And it is. But it can't do both at the same time. We're going to see why that's the case with the miniseries. <laughs> we sure are. The Shining stands on its own as being something that is truly a remarkable experience in cinema. And we've covered a lot of what's made it effective. And I think a lot of people who are listening to this already know why it's so effective. Right. I mean, it is one of the most famous horror films of all time. I mean, really, if you are a fan of the genre, you have to see this movie. The fact that it has such an legacy and reputation is a testament to Kubrick. I think as long as people care about cinema and horror films, people are going to care about The Shining. And you can't say that about a lot of movies. So he did make an enduring piece of cinema that's going to outlive probably all of us. The miniseries, huh, huh. here we have something that, you know, surprisingly, there's parts of it that I thought were really strong, and then, of course, there's parts of it that, that fall apart. I want to say, first and foremost, to get this out there, Stephen Weber, mostly before this, was known for playing the character of Brian Hackett on Wings. Interesting choice for the, for the role. You wouldn't have instantly thought that would come to mind. It's like, let's get the guy from Wings. You mean Tim Daly? No, not Tim Daly. He was our first choice, uh, which he was. Uh, no, let's get the other one. Let's get Brian. Brian Hackett in here. And they did. And the the thing that, that works to his benefit is that I fully believe, and I don't know if this is, I, I hate to say it because it sounds so terrible, but I fully believe that Stephen Weber can pull off that asshole charm, I, I, I guess, and I use the word charm light, lightly, but just like looking at his character through the movie... I can look at him and say, you know what? I bet he is kind of a fucking asshole, isn't he? Like, there's just something about the way he carries himself, this cockiness, that attitude, makes me fully believe that this is the character that Stephen King wrote. This does look like somebody who's, like, holding something back in anger and is repressed in terms of his embitteredness and his alcoholism. Weber really captures that incredibly well. And I'm surprised, after having read the book and then watching this, that, yeah, I can actually picture him in the role. If I were to go back and read the book, it's him that I can picture, as opposed to Jack Nicholson. So I think in terms of actually capturing the spirit of the book, credit needs to be given to Weber for putting in a very strong performance. I mean, I could definitely agree with that. I mean, I've got some pros and cons lists going on with the miniseries. So I will say, of the... TV miniseries we've watched so far for Stephen King, this is certainly not the worst. It's certainly better than some of the ones that we've discussed and will be discussing. But before I even get into that, I think it just needs to be made clear that whether you like this film or not, this is basically Stephen King's middle finger to Stanley Kubrick. In many ways, yes. This is a four and a half hour middle finger to Stanley Kubrick by Stephen King. I mean, Stephen King can't get over Stanley Kubrick's Shining. And I, what I find interesting is, yes, it's closer to the book in a lot of ways, but there's a few places that it deviates. And it does that because Stanley Kubrick's didn't. Like, they show up and there's nobody at the hotel. Where in the book, it was closing day and it was busy. And in the Stanley Kubrick movie, it's busy and there's a lot of people there. 
but not in this version because that happened in Stanley Kubrick's version and we don't want to do that. It's a movie that's got some merit. I, I definitely will talk about that. It's definitely got its flaws, but as I watched it, overriding feeling I keep getting is King basically saying, fuck you, Stanley Kubrick. Fuck you. I fucking hate you. This is how it's done. See how it's done? I'm doing it the right way. I think that's a little bit much, but okay. Well, but you know, Stephen King's pretty much gone there. I mean, he can't stop crying about it. It's, I honestly think that he actually needs to get over it. I think he has gotten over it. Okay, maybe he has. But in order to make this film, part of it is that he was legally reprimanded into getting over it. That in order to make this film, he couldn't complain about the movie anymore outside of Jack Nicholson, apparently. So that was part of the deal. So I don't know how over it he is. I think that they just said, fine, we'll let you make the film if you stop bad-mouthing Stanley Kubrick every 15 minutes. And he's like, fine. I think he's legitimately over it as time has gone by. For people who know King's work, the two interpretations of the story deviate in in various ways it's almost like yeah you see this happen sometimes in anime adaptations of things where for instance the manga and the anime will go in very different directions sometimes that's because the anime is being made while the manga is being written and they reach a point where well we don't have any more books to base off our episodes off of so we have to go in a different direction with the story so it's very common in things like that so for me the the deviation between both versions of The Shining there can just be chalked up to we've taken the characters and the story and we've just gone in some different directions with them. And I think King has come to realize that more. And it has to be that way because, again, this miniseries is more of that character study, but it tries to insert certain pieces of horror and a lot of it doesn't work. A lot of it doesn't work. The only legitimately creepy moment, I think, and it wasn't even scary, just like mildly creepy, is we do get to see Danny go into the room. And then he gets out of the room. And he's standing there in the hallway, panting, glad that he's got out of the room, and all of a sudden, boom, he gets drawn back in. I think that's the only the only legitimately creepy scene in the entire runtime. I'll give the movie credit. There's one other scene that I think is genuinely creepy. And I think it's when he runs into the guy dressed as the dog, who's barking in the hallway. But... Then they take it too far when they unmask him and he looks like a zombie with bad makeup on and it, it kind of ruins it. The Stanley Kubrick movie, what's great about it is that we're off balance. We don't really know what's real and what's happening and that's what's making it creepy. The problem with the ABC miniseries is that it keeps telegraphing the scares and that this place is supernatural way too much. It's pushing on me that this is a scary place so much then I'm not scared of it. It's like, oh, did you see that swing? It just moved. It just moved. It's haunted. Did you see that? Yeah, I did. I did see that. It's not scary, though. Thank you, though. But the scene with the dog, for the most part, was good. I did mention in the podcast that I thought that was one of the creepiest moments of the book is when Dan runs into the the guy dressed as a dog who's barking like a dog at him and, and threatening him. And yeah, the fact that we got to see Danny go into the room, which we didn't in the Stanley Kubrick version, meant that there was definitely room in this film to make that creepy and to do something that hadn't been done before on the screen. Another thing that I think was legitimately kind of unnerving and that followed the book a bit better, I can see where the movie couldn't do this, but the miniseries did it. In the book, we established that Wendy effectively kills Jack by stabbing him in the back, and Jack's body is basically just going from there on off of the the force of the hotel propping him up and keeping him alive. Right. Like he's effectively turned into a zombie at that point in time. We see that more with this Jack towards the end, where his face is 
starting to get all kinds of shades of messed up. Right. And he, he's barely scraping together. At some point in time, he says, you you killed me, you bitch. <laughs> she doesn't stab in the back in this. She throws a rope ball at his face. And that's not really as effective in any means. Like, the stab in the back, creepy as all hell, works. The, I threw a large croquet ball in his face. That just doesn't have the same impact, now does it? <sighs> I feel like I've been a little harsh on the movie so far, so let me talk about what I do like about it. I do like Wendy. I think she is an improvement over the Stanley Kubrick version. This is the Wendy of the book. Where this film does succeed is in the character relationships. We talked about how the book really is a character drama, and this does capture that. This is a much more satisfying film from a character point of view, and I think a big part of that, like you said, was Steven Weber, but also the actress playing Wendy. They have a relationship that you can believe in, that you can't really believe in with Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. It's almost like, why are these people even married? <laughs> you don't really understand why they're together to begin with, or why, at least at this point, they're still together. Where here you can understand it, much like in the book, where their marriage is on the rocks, but they genuinely care about each other and their son, and they want to make it work. That is a strong selling point of this miniseries. If you want a good character drama, you will get that from this movie you won't get a lot else that'll be as satisfying but as a character drama you will she gets the parts of wendy from the book that was completely scrapped in the stanley kubrick version wendy can hold her own against jack she's got her own barbs and a lot of the reason jack goes the way he does is because of those barbs and the things she says to him throughout the book and the movie she's not gonna take everything sitting down either you know she's a much more active character in this movie as well. She had good chemistry with Steven Weber, and I think the two of them do capture the tragedy of that marriage very well. For that alone, that was at least keeping me entertained watching the movie. If you've got characters that are good enough to keep you entertained, then it's doing something right. Even if there's a lot of other things I'm going to go into, the movie doesn't do well. Yeah, Rebecca de Mornay played the character of Wendy here. And like you said, she does a very good job of being an effective spouse and mother and making it so that, yeah, there, there is another force there against Jack that makes the tension grow. And there's a lovely scene where she's trying to seduce Jack to come up to bed with her. Yes, when she comes down in the robe. Yes, she comes down in the robe and she's gently and very realistically being coy and playing him up to the room. And he says, I'll be up there in a minute. I just want to keep, re I just got to finish reading this. Because he's been taken over by the hotel at that point, just reading over and over and over and all the, all this stuff. There's a very tense scene that could not happen in the movie because it takes so long. We have a very dialogue-heavy scene between the two of them, where it starts off with a lot of anger as Jack's flipping out. But then things start to settle as Jack is explaining himself, and they actually talk. And it feels very real. It feels like an actual couple having an right. actual discussion going through a range of emotions, and then at the end of it, to make it all the better, you get a redemption spot for Jack to where the discussion with his with his wife has led him away from the hotel's lurings, and he does go up to bed with her. And you have this moment of breakthrough to where somebody reached, to J reached out, got through to Jack. There's an actual person there. And I do give that scene in particular a lot of credit for being one of the more realistic portrayals of a relationship and an argument that you're likely to see in a, in a television miniseries. 
it's not just better than Kubrick's The Shining on that front with the characters. It's better than both the Salem's Lot movies we watched and the Carrie miniseries, which we'll talk about in a later podcast. Yeah, I mean, really, of all the movies we've talked about and will talk about, besides maybe the Brian De Palma version of Carrie, this is the best character work done in a Stephen King adaptation that we have seen so far. Having Stephen King on the movie, that's probably why it's so good, because he did make sure that that worked and wrote that dialogue the way it was written. Like you said, the actors are good, the writing's good. So therefore, that part is definitely a thumbs up from me. And really, the only major recommendation I can give about the movie. Because outside of that, I think there's a lot of problems with this movie. Whoever directed it is no Stanley Kubrick. He's fine, but there's nothing about it that sticks in your mind. There's no images that imprint in your brain long after. Let me stop you there for a second and let you know who the director is. Mr. Mick Garris. Now, this is a man who, prior to this, one of his bigger credits was he was the director of Critters 2, The Main Course. Oh! (laughs) Psycho 4, The Beginning. Oh, I've seen that! Before that, one of the reasons why he even teamed up with King in the first place is because Garrus is the man who directed the adaptation of Sleepwalkers. So that's how they, they kind of got connected together from there. And for some reason, despite the fact that Sleepwalkers is a terrible film, Garrus was then hired to work on The Stand, and then The Shining. The only thing that this man can really get, like, legitimate... Oh, I'm sorry. He also wrote the 1987 family comedy film, Batteries Not Included, and he wrote The Fly 2. There's there's a filmography to be proud of. The only legitimate thing in his catalog that most people would say is good is that this man wrote Hocus Pocus. Ah, okay. So he's got that at least. Which I think is a scarier film than this. In many ways, Bette Midler is much more terrifying than most of what the hotel will throw at you here. (laughs) Okay, like, we all know, put this into context here, the Shining miniseries was made in 1997. And it very much looks and feels and sounds like a made-for-TV movie from 1997. If you were to just look at the lighting of this, look at the film it's shot on, look at the way it's all set up, you'd be watching this and say, this isn't this isn't a movie that was released in a cinema. This wasn't released in theaters. And you'd be right. It doesn't look like it at all. At least the location works in terms of the hotel. The exterior shots work. Well, that's because that's the hotel that the book was actually based on. Right. If, I'm, right. if, I, if I recall correctly, this is the Overlook Hotel as Stephen King saw it. You are correct. So that's why that works. But everything else is just a mishmash of very poor designs. The music is terrible. Uh, none of it works. You even get like a jaunty ditty at one point in time. It's like they're out in the snow. It's like, no, no, that's not right. That's not right at all. And everything else is just completely unmemorable. So it fails in that regard. There's, there's no... Okay, like, look, for example, when we first were finding out about The Shining in the movie version, Dick is talking to Danny. You get this very intense close-up focus shot on them. I I can clearly see it. Dick says to Danny, want some ice cream, Doc? And the way it closes in on him, and the way you hear the sound in the background and the conversation going on, and then all of a sudden, over all that and the sound mixing, you hear the noise and the voice of Dick asking that question to Danny. And it's incredibly effective, and it stands out in my mind, and it's beautiful. You're not going to have any of that in the miniseries at all. No. You talked about the music, too. I think that's such an important point. We talked about how great the music is in Stanley Kubrick's Shining, and this is not that at all. This is completely generic TV music. In fact, you know what it was reminding me of a lot of the time? 
was it felt like a watered-down version of Mark Snow music from the early seasons of The X-Files. A lot of piano going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just like this. But yet, when you think of The X-Files from that era, those are more cinematic than this. And as a TV series, that was much more groundbreaking and looked good than this. And just because it's a made-for-TV movie doesn't mean it has to look cheap or bad. Toby Hooper's Salem's Lot looks like a movie. It doesn't look necessarily like a TV miniseries. And there's a lot of images in that movie that are burned into my brain that I remembered for years without seeing it again until recently. This has none of that going on. It is just a generic made-for-TV movie with blah music and blah direction and blah cinematography. There's really nothing to get excited about on that front, where... As Stanley Kubrick's Shining, yeah, maybe it's flawed from a character and story, but it's brilliantly directed, brilliant cinematography, brilliant music, brilliant jump scares and tension. You know, everything around it is kind of perfect, even if the characters at the center are not great. Where here, the characters at the center are great. Everything around them is just bland as hell. Well, I, I think it's important to note that in the 70s and 80s, TV miniseries were were big productions that had a lot of weight behind them. Salem's mm. Lot, obviously, you mentioned as being part of that. But Roots and Shogun, right. like mm. these were heavy-hitting things that had heavy clout behind them and were lavish productions, the miniseries Shogun. A lot of people don't necessarily remember it now, but at the time, it was a huge production to the point where they even were able to do shooting in Japan, that was, to, even today, it was the only American TV production filmed on location in Japan. Mm. That That's huge, and that goes to show the amount of effort they put into this. But this was back in 1980, uh, and Salem's Lot was around that time, too. So this was the, the peak of when miniseries were these big productions. They were lavish things that networks invested a lot of money into because of the acclaim that they were getting. A lot of that died in the 90s, and I hate to say it, Probably because of cable. It, it, well, partially cable, but also because these Stephen King productions were pretty shit. Uh, I think yeah. they had a lot to do with the downfall of it, as we'll find out when we have to watch the Langoliers and Tommyknockers. And <laughs> I've seen the Tommyknockers, actually, so I, I do remember that one. Yeah, so those things didn't help matters. But again, even from just, like we said, the look of it, this looks like a Lifetime movie. And in many ways, it kind of plays out like it. The music doesn't help at all. And then there's the special effects. Woo! First of all, I guess we gotta we gotta talk about you know the hedge line in the room. The hedge animals are back, so we gotta talk about that again. <laughs> if you didn't get enough hedge animal talk last time, I feel bad that Doug too is not here. I know, but. <sighs> what can you say? Uh, Stanley Kubrick made the right decision using a hedge maze. That's basically all I can say. Yeah, there's really no good reason why... <sighs> okay, I mean, we've talked before about the difference between special effects and practical effects. How very important it is to, to focus on practical effects because they don't age nearly as poorly as CG does. Where even some of the worst practical effects I've seen have still aged better than some of the best CG. The benchmark for it always tends to be Jurassic Park. Like, yes. did you do better than or worse than Jurassic Park when it came out? Uh, and that that makes even more sense today, considering how far how long it's been since that movie. And Jurassic Park was 93. If you're doing better than that movie 25 years later, you should be. 
if you're doing worse than it 25 years later, what are you doing wrong? Now, again, right. this is a mini-series, so obviously it's not going to have the same production values behind it. God, those hedge animals are just so awful. Yeah, uh, and again, I mean, the thing about it is, like, the effects look bad, and, and the directing isn't great, and the music isn't great, and yeah, it's a made-for-TV movie, and like you said, at the time, they didn't put the kind of production and and money into these things like they used to, but just thinking about TV from that time, there were shows that were doing this better. X-Files being one of them, Twin Peaks had done it too. I mean, that you could use a television budget and make it stretch and make it feel cinematic. Even if you have a repetitive score, the score can still work. And you could have directors that brought flair to it, like Kim Manners did in the X-Files. You could have people that could make television look great. That's not what this is. <laughs> this is not using the TV budget effectively. Hedge animals are not fucking scary. Okay, they're not scary. No. They're not scary. No. They're especially not scary in the daytime. I just don't have much to say because one, the CGI obviously looks terrible, but even beyond that, I think we've discussed that as much as we do like the book and appreciate what it brings to the table, the hedge animals is like the one thing we can't really get behind. And I, this just confirms it. It's just a silly idea that doesn't really work. And it just looks even more terrible in this movie than it did in my mind in the book. And it doesn't work because they're hedges. If they were twisted, gnarled branches in the shape of these animals, that'd be yeah. one thing. I could even buy a statue. But the problem with hedge animals is, as I said the last time, so basically the way to defeat them is to not trim them anymore. Right. <laughs> just let them turn into bushes. Problem solved! In one of the first scenes where we see them, it's Jack being tormented by them while he's out in the field there, or out in the uh, the playground. We don't see them move. We see the, well, I guess what would be now known more popularly is like the weeping angel effect from Doctor Who, to where when you're not looking at them, they move. That's what we see happening with Jack. We don't see the animals move, but we do see them get closer to them when he's not looking. That would be effective if they were actually scary looking, but they're hedge animals in the daytime. So yeah. even then, it doesn't really work. But then how do you make it even worse when you have them come after Danny and they're bad CGI? Oh my god, is it awful. But you know what I think is even more awful than the hedge animals in some ways? Floating Tony? Uh, the minute I saw that, I, I just... Uh, no. No is all I can say. It looks absolutely silly. It almost looks like we're... We're in like touched by an angel land or something. The problem with Tony in the movie compared to the book is that in the book, Tony is this mysterious figure that kind of comes in and out of T Danny's consciousness. And we don't really know who Tony is until the end when we get that surprise reveal. But as you said, King didn't spell it out for us in the book. So it kind of made the reveal go down a little easier because he wasn't saying blatantly, this is grown up Danny for the most part. But here... It's obvious that this is a grown-up Danny, that this is just some dude wearing khakis and looks like he basically dresses like Matthew Perry on Friends. It's just silly. It's silly. It's It doesn't work. I don't know if we want to jump the gun so much, but I, I hate the ending. The scene where Danny sees his dad and they have that little emotional moment and it feels like the end of a Hallmark Christmas movie. Ugh. All the any good feelings that I had about this movie practically all dissipated at that point. It just was so mushy and lame and just uh, with the kisses. That's what they're missing. Oh uh, yeah, 
uh, as soon as I watched that, I, I basically said, Stanley Kubrick is right. He's a genius. <laughs> but I don't care. Stanley Kubrick's movie is scary as hell. This is this is a Hallmark Christmas movie now at this point. This, this is like so off the rails. This is not even the book anymore. That's why I started thinking that this is his middle finger to Kubrick and that he's veering off from the book just to go for this easy sentimentality at the end that I just feel undermines the story so much and it's just cheesy as hell so tony's a failure and anytime we see spirits floating whether it's the dad or tony it's just stupid the only good thing about the ending is that it shows the overlook being reconstructed at the end right it goes back to the idea that that location there's something about it evil is going to linger and fester there and there's no getting around it. it's going to find a way to come back so in that sense we got something nice there but yeah, that graduation scene, let's just say I'm glad that that is not how Dr. Sleep as a book begins. Just think how Stanley Kubrick sends. It's that creepy vestige of Frozen Jack and then slowly panning in on that picture that maybe he was always there and kind of giving you this like, whoa, what what the hell? As opposed to, to this, which, yeah, no. You know, we're going to harp on the ending here. Even then, King tries to give Jack more redemption than necessary to where in the book, the only redemption that Jack gets is that he's about to try to kill Danny and he stops. And for a moment, his son reaches out to him and he's able to tell them that he loves him. And Jack tries to kill himself with the mallet to put a stop to it. Like that's Jack's redemption in the end. In the miniseries, Jack's redemption is... This psychic battle between good and evil in the bottom of the basement where he's trying to, like, activate the boiler and and get it all good to go and it's going to be okay. And then, you know, it breaks through. It's like, no, I'm taking this place down with me. And Jack's able to make the boiler go all over the top, all over the top. And what makes the book effective, Jack got that mild redemption spot and then the hotel completely obliterates anything that's left of his mind. Right, he's so, gone. Like you said, Wendy killed him when she stabbed him in the back, and that was like the last sign of life from Jack was was that moment where he spared Danny's life, and then he's gone. In here, the last spot of redemption we have is drawn out, dragged out over all this rigmarole and this fight in the basement for Jack's mind between his son and the hotel. Um, but in the book, the you'll remember what he forgot. As soon as he's told about the boiler... Jack runs down there because the hotel is just using him as a vessel for its own interests. And they're trying to stop the boiler from going up. And they start chanting, yes, we did it, we did it, yes, we saved it. And then it blows up. They didn't manage to save it in time. In the miniseries, it's not that. Jack Jack isn't just a vessel anymore. He's still somehow able to partially control himself. That's where he does it. It is not nearly as effective or terrifying as that moment of redemption that Jack has in the Shining book. That's just this glimmer of hope that for one second he was reached. And that one second of being able to say, I love you very much, and then tries to kill himself, that one moment is so much better than this dragged out ten minutes of of watching him fight himself to, to make the boiler go up. It doesn't work. It's terrible. I don't know why King wrote it that way for the screenplay. It just doesn't work at all. No, and like I said, the best part about this movie is the characters, but this almost undoes all the good feelings I have about them. 
as a result and that it's unnecessary it's drawn out and it, it has less of an impact than what the book did now all of a sudden i feel like the whole experience was soured like it, the movie ended on such a sour note for me i came away with probably more negative feelings than i would have otherwise yeah it's just really bad and then of course there's CGI hoses. That's a whole other uh, thing that's not working either. This is another thing the book does tremendously better. I mean, the movie ignores it, but the book, you had this scene where Danny sees the hose as it falls off the roll, mm-hmm. and he's convinced that the hose is alive and it's going to come after him. And we see it play out, and Danny thinks that it's right on his heels and it's going to get him, and he looks behind him, and the hose is still right where it was. Knowing what we do about the hotel, though, and how things quickly return back to normal when you're not looking... What we don't know is whether or not that was part of Danny's imagination or part of the hotel's mechanizations, because it could have been either one, and the book leaves it completely up in the air as to what it was. Or as I said, this movie just telegraphs the scare so blatantly and wants you to know so obviously that this place is haunted that it actually makes it less scary. Subverting his own writing by writing this, and I don't understand why he did it that way. Uh, It just doesn't make much sense to me why you'd go about doing it when what you wrote previously was so much more effective. Part of me is thinking that he's just trying to do stuff different from the Kubrick version, that he's he's overcompensating for it in a way that's detrimental to the actual novel itself, that he's going so far away from Kubrick that he's now starting to stray from the novel in places where he shouldn't be. Even then, like, you could have had Danny, like, trying to run past the hose and jump over it. And then you could have had tense music playing as Danny looks behind him, but we don't actually cut to what he's looking behind. And then you could have had, like, the sound of the hose or something slithering along chasing after him, and then cut back to it as as he reaches the staircase, and then cut the music and boom, the hose is right where it was. You could have done that, and you wouldn't have needed any special effects. You wouldn't have even needed any practical effects. Just nice camera work, a nice musical score, and you could have had a wonderful scene portrayed there instead of the CGI mess that we got. It is a mess of CGI, but again, it's obvious that the director lacks imagination too. So, you know, everything you just described, it wouldn't have taken a lot of work to make it happen, but he probably just didn't even think about that to begin with. That's the ultimate downfall of this. It looks like, feels like, sounds like a 90s made-for-TV movie, and that was not the good period to be a made-for-TV movie. But even by made-for-TV movie standards, it's weaker than some I can think of in terms of how it looks anyway. If there's anything else well... You know, the pacing is good. I'll give it that. I I do think the pacing is good. It is four and a half hours, but if you've read the book especially, it doesn't feel like four and a half hours because it does a good job kind of taking you through most of what the book did while at the same time kind of keeping it interesting enough to keep you watching. I do think that the two main actors are very good, and if it wasn't for them, this would be an unwatchable bore. There are legitimate things that it can be given credit for. Like you were saying, if if you've read the book then you know where the miniseries is going. But even if you haven't read it, I don't feel like this drags at all, even Mm. though it has such a bloated runtime. It's not bloated. It feels like they make effective use of that time. This should have been bloated. I will give credit to King for that. In general, these books are very well paced. King does have a tendency, at least from what we've seen so far, to carry that through in his writing. And it also carries through in the screenplay here. Credit where it's due... It's well-paced. I appreciate that. But I think it's a perfect example of just because it's like the book doesn't mean it's better. And I think that's something we saw with the Salem Slot movies, too, where the second miniseries tried to cram more in from the book, and it kind of became less likable 
as a result than the Toby Hooper movie was because all the characters were so unlikable and they tried to cram so much in there. I will put this above the second Salem's Lot miniseries for the simple reason that I liked spending time with Jack and Wendy. I can't say that about any of the characters in the 2004 Salem's Lot. Uh, but it still it carries itself well enough in terms of its story to where you know what's going on, you understand the arcs, and that's something that you don't necessarily get from The Shining the film, where there are no character arcs. The arc is, Jack's alive, now he's dead. That's <laughs> the only character arc you get. But outside of that, there, there's a number of flaws here, but I did... I did enjoy watching it. Yeah. And that's not something that I can say about a lot of TV miniseries, and I'm sure we're not going to be saying that about some of the others coming up. We've been pretty harsh on it, but it's not unwatchable. It's just very workmanlike. It's just there's not a lot of pizzazz to it. There's not a lot to really um, – that's happening on the screen to reel you in in terms of like aesthetics and visuals and music. But like I said, the characters are good enough that it's you don't feel it doesn't feel tedious spending four and a half hours with them and for a movie this long that's kind of a minor miracle at the same time i don't know why who i would recommend this to who would i recommend this to if you want to watch a really great scary movie watch stanley kubrick's the shining if you want the actual shining by stephen king read the book you're clearly missing who to recommend this movie to who fans of wings oh well i mean obviously (laughs) Uh, clearly, that's that's who you recommend this to. Fans of Wings. And also, you know, just because everything comes back to Batman with me, Pat Hingle. Oh, yeah, you do get Pat Hingle. Do you get Pat Hingle. That's cool. You do get you do get Pat Hingle, which, as many people will remember, he was Commissioner Gordon in all four of the Tim Burton, Joel Schumacher Batman films. Yeah. And here, here, he is actually a likable character, unlike in the book, where he's a scuzzy, slimy, unlikable janitor and we also have a little bit of a friends connection elliot gould is in it as as the manager of the overlook i he actually was very feel, good he was very good in that role he was and i was actually very disappointed that we didn't see him again i wanted that phone call to go through where we hear him talk to to elliot gould's character i know that something happens but we don't really see it play out like we did in the book right but he does he did really nail that performance of that asshole caretaker who was better than everybody else who felt like he was better than everybody else and had this huge sense of pride but was effective at his job and that was carried through very well in his performance so i gotta give gould credit not a lot of people can pull it off as well as he did and it was very well done just talking about him talking about pat hingle acting and the character work is good could you imagine how good this movie could have been if it was directed by someone of Stanley Kubrick's caliber? Yeah, I mean, you'd probably have a stronger film here. I don't think it would have worked well because there's there's too much character development in this movie. You would have had to have somebody tackle it who had a flair for the dramatic. Right. I mean, but, I don't think it would have been the scary movie that Kubrick's was. I right. think I, I don't think it but I as we were talking about we could have had better effects. We could have had better practical effects. We could have had a better score. We could have had a more creative director with a better vision. And yeah, maybe it wouldn't have been Stanley Kubrick's The Shining movie everyone remembers, but it could have been something special if we had if the craftsmanship of this movie was better than competent. That's all very true. And yeah, it's regrettable that they have a director attached to it like Garris who just does not uh... <laughs> it teases me enough that there's a great movie here that it makes me frustrated that it doesn't come out 
you know, unlike the Salem's Lot miniseries where that, the 2004 one, I mean, pretty quickly, we, we, we realized we didn't like any of these people. And that really, besides Donald Sutherland, there wasn't much going on to keep it to keep it enjoyable. We're here. You just feel like if they had made a few tweaks, if they had gotten a better director, if they had done some things, you know, this could have been something that could be more recommended and more remembered in the long run than it is. It could have risen above the level of Psycho for the beginning. <laughs> I remember watching that on USA Network back in the 90s. You know, this feels like it should have been on USA at some point in time. Like, this is one of those things that would have rerun at, like, 2 o'clock in the afternoon after Wings. It did come in with a lot of hype. I do remember when this came out. I was in fifth grade. I wasn't into horror yet. But I remember ABC was advertising the heck out of it. Oh, God, ABC advertised all these Stephen King miniseries, like, to hell and back. Do you remember right. all the Storm of the Century advertisements? Yes, yes. <laughs> but I remember all the interviews with King saying that we're going to do it right this time, and this is how it's done. And I remember kids talking about it at school. A lot of people did tune in for this. This was a big deal when it came out. So oh, yeah. the fact that it's now just a footnote, is kind of is a strong indictment against it, and the fact that nobody talks about it now is because it's pretty unmemorable. Yeah, but we've covered it here as we've discussed now this and the original one. So, yeah, we got those under our belts, and there'll be more to come up. Carrie will be next, and if you thought it was fun talking about two adaptations of a book, boy howdy, we got three for you coming up when we talk about Carrie. And boy, the quality is going to give you quite the whiplash. I know it gave me whiplash. <laughs> oh, Lord. So we'll be, we'll be discussing those next time around after we cover the book first. Uh, any closing thoughts on The Shinings? We rated what the Salem's Lot movies were out of, out of a scale of 10. So let's, let's rate these. How would you rate both of these movies on a scale of 10 for your final thought? Kubrick's The Shining as a horror movie, as an effective horror movie... It's probably a 10, and maybe that's where the rating should rank. Overall, as I'm watching it, I I, don't, I still don't like the shadow characters, so I'd probably give it an 8 on my personal scale when it comes to an overall film. That's not really fair. So, so you have to go into it, taking the movie as what it is. For taking it for what it is, it's a 10. As for the miniseries, taking it for what it is... It's about a six. Well, I was going to say that I think it's interesting that you said objectively Stanley Kubrick's The Shining's a 10, but subjectively you think it's an eight. I'm going to give it a nine. I, I think it's really good. It's not in my top five, maybe not even in my top 10 horror movies of all time, but it has its place. Any list that ever talks about the greatest horror movies of all time has to grasp with this film. If this film isn't on the list, it's not a legitimate horror list of the greatest horror movies ever made. I do give it a nine out of 10. It had been a long time since I'd really sat down and watched it from start to finish. And I did save it for after the TV miniseries so that I wouldn't be comparing it mm -hmm. as much. Again, I think the elements that work, work well. And yeah, I have some quibbles and I have some arguments, but for the most part, I think Stanley Kubrick made just about all the right decisions in terms of how he was going to bring this book to screen in order to make it a scary movie. So I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. It's pretty much a classic, but it stands alone from the novel as its own piece of work. The TV miniseries, I'm going to go with like, I'm kind of almost like where I was with Event Horizon, where I'm thinking a 5.5, but the ending pushes it down to a 5. If that ending had been chopped off, I probably could have get bumped it up to a 6 with you, but that Hallmark cheesy ending 
bumps it down to a five. Now, that's where they stand. And we'd like to hear your thoughts on the movie and the miniseries, even though you probably haven't seen the miniseries. But leave your comments here on it anyway. You can contact me on Twitter at CriticalAndroid or email thecriticalandroid at gmail.com. And, uh, Dougie, thank you once again very much for being here as we keep exploring the adaptations of Stephen King. I can only imagine we get to a short story collection how long it's going to take us to get through all those adaptations. Another discussion for another day, I suppose. Yes. But thank you once again for joining us here on Stay Out of Maine, a Stephen King podcast. We look forward to continuing this adventure and moving along through the works of Mr. King. Remember, you can now catch this on castbox.fm and on YouTube, where it's being simulcast, so to say. Pick the one that works best for you, and feel free to share it and bring others into the fold. So for myself, the Critical Android, and Dougie Style, thank you very much again for listening, as we advise you to stay out of Maine.